Let's understand the world a little better. I'm your host, Timon Wunderlich, and with me is Matthew Freer. Uh, Dr. Freer is Assistant Professor of Russian and Eurasian Studies at Leiden University, and he also is the author of Belarus under Lukashenko, Adaptive Authoritarian. Uh, authoritarianism. <laughs> um, yeah, let me first ask you, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thanks for inviting me on. Uh, Lukashenko, um, or Lukashenko, uh, I want to ask you, how did his origins actually, um, how, how did he start coming into politics? In the beginning was the Soviet Union, where he grew up in. Um, did he have any ambitions becoming a politician there as well? Oh, if we go back, we're going back 30 years now. So, um, yes, um, he didn't necessarily show great ambition to become a politician, during the Soviet days, but with the collapse of the Soviet Union around 91, um, he started to get involved as a local MP. Yeah, not at the Soviet level, but in the Belarusian Soviet Socialist Republic. So uh, did his political ambitions have anything to do with the collapse? I think the, the, the collapse gave him the opportunities to portray himself as the outsider, as somebody who wasn't involved in the collapse, who wasn't either the old system nor the new nationalists. So he found a way to you know, make his appeal as a populist to people. I'm not like the past. Things are going badly now with the collapse. I'm going to do everything differently. So he took, he took, sees the opportunities available to him at that time, but he wasn't, before he became president, he'd held no significant political role. He'd been a, the chair of a, um, a corruption committee in the parliament, but he'd never hold a ministerial post. He'd never held a prime ministerial post. So he very much came, he really sold himself for his first election as the outsider. So what were his promises then in the beginning? Oh, that everything would be better. You know, things would be like the good old days. Um, uh, things will not. Things will be more familiar. You know, with the difficulties of the change and transition in the 1990s, a lot, lots of uncertainty, uh, lots of difficulties for the average citizen on the street. And so it's very much, I'm going to find ways to have good relations with Russia again, to change the economy back to the good old days to make everything how it used to be in the Soviet times. A lot of it was nostalgia for the Soviet past, even though that was only at the time, only a few years in the in the past. So it was harking back to the good old days, which is always very popular with politicians. <laughs> Now, you have to help me here a little bit. Um, in Germany, you have to first make a career within a, uh, within a party uh, before you can um, become chancellor, for example. Uh, how is it in Belarus? Can you immediately um, be elected as president? Uh, in the case of Lukashenko, he was it was possible because again it was a very new post. He'd never been a president before. You know, the, the Soviet Union collapsed in 1991, and they had to come up with a new constitution which would allow for a presidential system. And Lukashenko was the first person elected to it. There was um, the head of state until then was just the Speaker of Parliament, and so there were no expectations of it's a parliamentary system or we have to spend its serve time in Parliament before he got elected as president, because nobody had been president before. And so he is able to seize the opportunity and take advantage of this unknown system and therefore appeal directly to the people. I'm going to break things as good as they used to be, so vote for me. And also the people who had been in power in the early 1990s were not necessarily popular. And so there was an opportunity to say, You know, they're causing all the problems. You're, they're causing all the difficulties you're facing. I am new. I'm a new face. He was also relatively young at the time. He's only in his uh, late 30s. And so young, new, populist, 
appeal to a lot of people and therefore swept to victory in the first election in 1994. Uh, he didn't. He didn't represent a particular party. He didn't really have his own party. He stood as an in, independent candidate, but really, just as you know, because he always wanted to say, "I am a man of the people." He didn't need a party. He didn't want to represent a certain movement. He was, "I'm. I represent all of you." You know, so th- that was the appeal to stay away from parties and things like that. Uh, that's what I was about to ask. Uh, the system there, uh, particularly um, parties, how are they now? Are there more parties now that um, represent others? Uh, if you look at the system now, we've got parliamentary elections coming up beginning of next year. But if you look at the parliament in Belarus under Lukashenko, for the most part, the vast majority of MPs do not represent political parties. They stand as independent or individual non-partisan candidates. Uh, there are a few parties, uh, some of which are loyal to the regime, some of which stand very much in opposition, but they're very marginal. They're not a significant political player in Belarus. So at the moment, you don't need a party to do well in Belarus. If you if you want representation, if you want to serve politics, parties are a useful tool for technical matters. You know, you need somebody to actually stand in seats or to uh, observe elections or represent certain interests. But for the most part, parties do not play a huge role in, in practice. You don't have the equivalent of, say, Russia with its United Russia Party of Power. There's no equivalent of that in Belarus at the moment. There's often talk of it, but the reality is um, you don't need them. Lukashenko has been president. Everybody who's elected to parliament is loyal to Lukashenko for the most part. And so what do you need parties for? So that's often the argument. that um, there's, But there's often uh, discussions about is there going to be an attempt to create a party of power? But so far, Lukashenko hasn't needed it because he gets the support or he can and he can shape the system to his own needs so yeah you don't have or let's have there are a handful of parties but they play no real significant role and the ones which do get elected to parliament even now it's probably like less than 10 percent of seats are actually filled by people representing parties now is my assumption wrong that this first election um that, that it was fair yeah it seems to be to to the most part, you know, fair. It went two rounds. You know, Lukashenko came top in the first round, but multiple other candidates stood. And he went through to second round against the then sitting prime minister. Uh, and then most of the most of the forces sort of gathered around him against the sitting prime minister. So again, the sitting prime minister could then be blamed for, well, these are all the difficulties you have. So therefore, don't vote for him, vote for somebody different. But for the most part, although there were some problems around the edges, it was a f- relatively free and fair election back in 1994. How and when has that changed? Probably relatively early on. In 1996, there were there was a massive, well, what's this gets described as a constitutional call or a parliamentary putsch. Uh, Lukashenko was already having difficulties with both the judiciary and with parliament and basically forced through changes to the constitution, uh, which gave the president more powers and weakened the powers of the other branches of government. So from there, you saw Lukashenko, now in post, consolidating power around himself. And so then when we came to, and then delayed the next election to 2001, and in that one, you probably would say it wasn't as free and fair, though he won 
that election. Um, it went; it only took place in one round, and um, since then, generally, he's always got about eighty percent of the vote. Um, Lukashenko and Russia, uh, or Putin, um, always. It has been said that they have a sort of love-hate relationship. Mm. Um, how independent would you say is Belarus in general from Russia? I mean, one thing to remember is that Lukashenko has been in power longer than Putin. You know, Putin has been prime minister or president since 1999. So Lukashenko has a five-year head start of experience and expertise. So it's not like he's, he's he came up under Putin. Um, of course, his difficulties, even as president of, Luke, of Belarus, to actually do things off your own back. You know, Belarus has for a long time remained and wanted to remain dependent on Russia for economic, security and political reasons. So the room for manoeuvre is small, but in many ways, Lukashenko has been able to do his own thing. Um, up until the main change we've seen has been more recently since the invasion of Ukraine in 2020 or the new wave of invasion of Ukraine in 2020. There'd been, obviously, the invasion began in 2014, but with the 2020 invasion, uh, Lukashenko has demonstrated he's far more dependent on Russia and far less willing to do things that might annoy Russia. But for a long time, Belarus under Lukashenko has been willing to side with Russia and seek benefits from a close relationship with Russia. But it hasn't always just done what they're told, you know. So there have been opportunities to do things differently. Um, but often under Lukashenko, there hasn't been much interest in doing that. There's more interest in getting benefits or leveraging the relationship with Moscow. I mean, from uh, 2014 in the beginning, I think uh, Lukashenko did not say that Uh, the Crimean uh, Peninsula was part of Russian ter uh, territory or part of Russia. And now he changed his opinion yeah. or his uh, statements uh, in regards to that. Uh, yeah, why? That's absolutely a, a prime example. You know, you might have expected that if Minsk just did it was, as it was told, it would have said in 2014, we you know do not recognize the um, territorial integrity of Ukraine. We agree that um, uh, Crimea has been annexed. But at the time, uh, Lukashenko didn't do that because he was interested in uh, good relations with Ukraine as a big neighbor. And also at that time, there was there were some attempts at a thaw in relations with the West. Um, so there, it wasn't in Lukashenko's interest to just give in to whatever uh, Russia wanted to say about Ukraine. And also there could be attempts to try and monetize loyalty. There was often talk of that maybe Lukashenko had said, well, if we get these sorts of new um, economic deals or things like that, then we will recognize your annexation of Crimea. But if, we, if there's nothing in it for us, why should we do it? But with 2020, you know, with Russia actively engaging with um, sending forces through Belarus and with Belarus showing it was willing to, no, sorry, with Russia willing to show it was go willing to use its force in Ukraine. There was more concern in um, in um, Belarus that this could be repeated here, so therefore we will agree to whatever Russia is doing. Um, but in 2014, there was no need to. It's like, is it in our interest to just agree to whatever Russia wants with Ukraine? No. So let's do our own thing. Uh, but as soon as it became no longer in their interest to just 
uh, recognize or support Ukraine, they stop doing that. Isn't there a sort of fear in, uh, or shouldn't there be a sort of fear in um, Belarus that uh, Russia wants to take back Belarus as well? There is certainly concern about that, not only amongst the public, but also probably within the elites. Um, you know, Belarus is a small country, has a very small military. You know, Russia is a, is hugely bigger, both uh, in terms of security, in terms of the economy. So there are ways that it could happen. Um, but on the other hand, there's an attempt to play out, we are your loyal ally, we are your friend, we support you, so therefore you don't need to invade us. So um, that's probably one of the reasons why Lukashenko changed his rhetoric after 2022 uh, to be more openly supportive of Russia's actions in Ukraine when before he hadn't been, because it was like self-preservation. You know, we've seen what could happen. Therefore, now we're going to show that we are loyal and you do not need to threaten us or invade us. But also there could be a view from Belarus where we've seen the difficulty that Russia's had in Ukraine. It's not, you know, it didn't seize Kiev. It hasn't completely won the war in three days. So maybe there could be the hope that um, Russia does not have the capacity to now march into Belarus and fight a war there at the same time. So um, there, there could be those attitudes. But yeah, there, there are concerns about what could this mean for us in terms of what Moscow has been doing in neighboring countries. I think it's very interesting since um, other uh, neighboring uh, countries neighboring Russia uh, seem to go the opposite way. For example, Finland or um, I mean now Ukraine, obviously, but um, that that they wanted to get closer to the West and not to Russia. Yeah, it's just one of those things that it's sort of not in uh, Lukashenko's interest to actively pursue the West too much because he's an autocratic ruler. You know, what, you know, you can't just turn to the West and the West says, that's fine, you carry on being an autocrat and rigging your elections and then you can join the EU and NATO. Makes so sense. the part of the problem is the, the way he's maintained power is through autocratic means, which isn't necessarily welcome in the, in the West. So um, there's a difficulty of just, just turning straight away to the West um, and staying in power. That's the thing. You could make a move to, okay, let's turn towards the West But that would also threaten and undermine Lukashenko's own rule. Uh, your second title, uh, the second title of your book, is called "Adaptive Authoritarianism." Oh, second time, I, I'm not able to get it. Um, what does this mean? I think because when I was writing the book initially, when I was initially doing my PhD, which is what this book is based on, a lot of the rhetoric around uh, Belarus was very much. It was a throwback to the Soviet past. It was a, an island of um, an outpost of tyranny, you know, the last dictatorship in Europe. It was ossified and backward looking. And I just found that when you were looking at what was actually happening in Belarus, the Lukashenko, which came to power in 1994, was different to the Lukashenko in 2004 and different to the Lukashenko and his regime in 2014. He'd stayed in power But he hadn't just stayed the same person who'd been in power in 1994. He'd adapted and changed to maintain support, both with the public and with the elites. In so he way? wasn't, you know, the thing which got him to power and won him his victory in 1994 wouldn't work again 20 years later. But he'd been able to adapt to, uh, to then find ways to stay in power and maintain support. Adapt in what way? For example, in 1994, everything was about 
close relations with Russia, you know, the good old days of the Soviet Union, um, uh, nostalgia for the past. And that worked in 1924. You know, the Soviet Union was only a few years in the past. People remembered that in a in a good way. But once we get to, say, 2014, um, that was not going to appeal anymore. People got used to having more of a uh, Western-style economy or liberal economy. People had got used to being in an independent country, so didn't just want to be subsumed by Russia or rebuilding the Soviet Union. So therefore, the regime had to adapt to talk about the sovereignty of an independent Belarus or good relations with the West and with Russia and with China. So you used a different rhetoric and a different way of speaking to appeal to people in 2014 because it was 20 years later and the world had changed and Belarus had changed. So that's how things adapted. And the same in terms of who do you rely on to keep you in power? Is it all just, you know, you never really needed a party, as we said, you know, at the end of the 80s and the early 1990s, it was merging from one-party rule with the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. Early on, Lukashenko had come up with some of his colleagues from the area he'd grown up in. He then worked with some people from the security services and the military, but he didn't just rely on them. Sometimes it was going to be with technocrats or with growing business interests, which had been ignored in the 1990s, but then embraced and worked with in the 2000s. Um, maybe we can see it in that. What, what were, since his first election, uh, the major uh, decisions or, or some major decisions and policies that he has made? I mean, one of the big ones has always been talking about, you know, close relations uh, with Russia. You know, um, he always talked about he would be the one to build good relations with Russia um, and technically in the 1990s, signing treat, uh, agreements with um, Yeltsin at the time to create a new union state of Russia and Belarus. Now, in practice, that has never really amounted, amounted to very much. Technically, it exists on paper. But, you know, the other thing is Lukashenko still wants to be president of a country. He doesn't want to be the junior partner in a union state of Russia and Belarus. There was talk in the late 90s that maybe his hope would, he would end up being the president of Russia and Belarus. Now that never happened, but um, his interest is to stay in power. And so in order to secure good deals or good agreements with uh, Moscow, he was willing to go along with their, their demands for a union state. Um, because also in the 2000s onwards, there has been talk about taking part in close integration with the EU. Um, they've always ignored NATO, but there's interest in integration with the EU for technical and economic matters, but not democracy and rights. You know, that is seen as a domestic area, which the EU should ignore, but interests in expanding and diversifying uh, economic partnerships. Um, and so those are big things. But then after that, it's been mainly you know, increasingly consolidating power in the hands of the presidency. In the early 1990s, with the creation of the first independent Belarusian political system, it had, it had everything you'd expect, you know, a judiciary, a parliament, a presidency. And over the decades that Lukashenko has been in power, he has slowly moved more and more of the power into the hands of the presidency, and in particular him as president. There has never been another president. Nobody else has ever been president of independent Belarus. So everything is about him. 
And as he now has moved um, closer again to Russia, uh, at some point he was called or named uh, not a peacemaker, but a diplomat in a way uh, between the fronts. And um, is that still true? Can that still be true now that he has uh, even said that Crimea should be part of or is actually part of Russia? Yeah, with the initial evasion of uh, Ukraine, with the annexation of Crimea back in 2014, in many ways it worked to Lukashenko's advantage because he sold himself as the mediator. You know, the Minsk Accords were hosted in Minsk and he was, said, well, no, I am not. I'm going to be there to talk to the West, talk to Russia and represent and balance what's going on. And so, And Ukraine was interested in working with Lukashenko as a mediator at that point. He was seen as, okay, he's somebody who is going to be able to talk to all sides. That has all gone now. Since 20, 2022 and the um, the renewed invasion via Belarus, uh, any attempts for Belarus to get involved as a neutral mediator, Ukraine is not going to accept that. And nor is the West. You know, The West has also been imposing sanctions on Belarus as well as Russia for their involvement in the invasion. So though Belarusian armed forces have not invaded Ukraine, the fact that Belarusian territory has been used to mount the attacks over the past 18 months has meant that Ukraine is not interested in seeing Belarus as a mediator anymore. And the West is no longer willing to involve Lukashenko in any sort of future agreement. So that's gone away. But that's an opportunity lost. It was it was useful for Lukashenko, say, in 2014 to set himself as a mediator. But now that's that's gone away. Do you see a future or a near future for Belarus without Lukashenko? Is there any way of change again i think in some ways you know in after the re the, the re-election in inverted commoners the re-election of uh, lukashenko back in 2020 and facing down the massive uh, street protests against him um one of the results of that he's had to rely a lot more on russia and so although he faced a lot of pressure domestically and on the streets in 2020, ultimately Russia was willing to back him, but it's also made him even more dependent than ever on Russia. So it's going to be very difficult for uh, domestic forces within Belarus to to ease him out. It's far more likely that maybe if Moscow was fed up with him, they could help push him out. There's often talk of some sort of um, Russian-backed uh, revolution uh, to oust Lukashenko uh, as a possibility. But as long as he keeps being loyal and not causing problems, uh, Moscow will tolerate him as a, a loyal um, partner. But um, I think the chances of, although I thought the chances of him perhaps being ousted were stronger after the protests of 2020, I think Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022 in some ways actually helped bolster his ability to stay in power because domestically people are concerned, could this be repeated in Belarus? And he can sell his loyalty to Russia saying, we have supported you in your uh, special military operation, therefore help keep me in power as well through you know, providing the economic benefits for this country and if necessary, you know, military or security support in the background. So, mm. so he became more popular within the population again? Not necessarily more popular. I don't think he's more popular. 
Um, because back in 2020, people were very fed up with him being in charge for so long, his poor handling of the COVID crisis in Belarus, uh, the declining um, economic standard of living in the country. But, you know, because there was so much brutality in the crackdown against protesters uh, in 2020, uh, and with so much of the active opposition now either in prison or in exile, it's much more difficult to really to really push through some sort of domestic bottom-up pressure against Lukashenko. He's got so much control over so many aspects of domestic politics and the economy and security that really the only attempt to to ease him out might be if if an outside power like Moscow itself wanted to ease him out of power. But he's not popular. He's perhaps just seen as, well, he's there. He's been in there for a while. Better the devil you know, you know, rather than the uncertainty of bringing somebody else in who might um, have a worse relationship with Moscow. And we've seen what can happen if Moscow is not happy with its neighbours. It might invade like it did with Ukraine. So I think um, it's not necessarily popularity, but it's a resigned acceptance of this is who is in charge. He's been there for a long time. For the most part, things have been okay. So it's better to have him than the unknown alternative. How did the um, average citizen in Belarus, how did their life change under uh, Lukashenko's uh, rule? And again... He's been there for a long time. He's been there for 30 years. What so of course, what I'm everything has changed a lot. Um, for many did it people, come to the better in the in the in the latest year is Belarus actually economically, for example, um, on the rise in a way. So did the living conditions improve? Maybe not because I of mean, him, but why things was improved there? from between the 90s and the early 2000s. You know, there was a big economic dip after the. Uh, breakup of the Soviet Union and, you know, the struggles of initial independence in the 1990s. And if you go back to the turn of the century in the 2000s, it apparently a very healthy economy, mainly because the Ukrainian economy was relied on uh, using cheap Russian energy to run factories and things like that. Uh, but it, you know, I think you had an average of like seven percent growth for like a decade or something in the A two thousand from a very low base, and mostly dependent on having cheap Russian energy. But over the last decade or so, things have been slowing down. The good deals with Russia have been slowly drying up to a certain extent. Russia has been less willing to simply throw money at Belarus to maintain the economy, um, and. That's Sorry. Less willing. Less. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, why, why is that? Because... Uh, a lot of it just goes back to the... Again, the idea of a return on investment. It's like, okay, we've, we've poured money into propping up the Belarusian economy, and what do we get out of it? Mm. Why, do we, why should we be paying to support you when we've got poor areas within Russia, for example? And again, it, this was common with a lot of the post-Soviet republics. So if, again, if you go back to the early 2000s, uh, Russia was less willing to just throw money at Ukraine, less willing to just throw money into Central Asia. It's like, why are we? What do we get out of giving you the benefits of our wealth? So, 
And of course, the response from Belarus or under Lukashenko would often be, yes, but we are your first line of, if, if nasty NATO invades, they'll go through us first, therefore give us cheap energy. Um, so it's trying to monetize loyalty and say, we need cheap energy, we need access to markets and things like that because we provide some other benefit, or we are your loyal ally in the United Nations or on the world stage. Um, exactly. That's why I would have thought the loyalty uh, would have uh, resulted in uh, better uh, economic relationships. But then it's like, is it worth, you know, against return on investment, is it worth doing all this, you know? Um, what do we get out of it? it in the, uh, if it's huge, or it, or if it's, could is it taking money away from, The, the the Russian economy, and again you'd hear in Russia complaints about um, you know the Russian oil, uh, Belarusian oil refineries were getting good deals, or Russia was getting access to markets which were being denied to local suppliers or things like that. So it could be there were there were audiences in Russia that would complain that Belarus and other former Soviet republics were getting too good of a deal, which was was unfair. And yeah, maybe it meant they were loyal on the political front uh, in uh, mutual relations, but economically it was not of benefit. To, uh, um, now, one part that maybe is um, questionable in terms of loyalty is um, the. Could you explain the uh, briefly the situation with the Wagner Group that um, occurred when um, when it had problems with Russia? Yeah. Um, Yes, Wagner's been in the story for a while. I mean, people forget it now, but just before the 2020 elections in Belarus, um, one of the big scandals was that Lukashenko had a group of Wagner mercenaries arrested in Belarus. And he made this big claim because they were passing through Belarus, allegedly on the way to somewhere else, possibly Ukraine. And he said this was a plot by Wagner against him. Again, this was just before the 2020 election. So it's very good to say, see, Russia is meddling in what's happening. Of course, this was all forgotten after he needed Russia support to um, see off the street protests. So but in the past, he's complained about Wagner, but then he saw the opportunity with the more recent attempt by Prigozhin to um, mount an uprising against uh, Putin to then step in as a mediator again. Uh, don't worry, you know, I'll be the one who can uh, help you out and help all sides. You need me as the mediator, interlocutor, which didn't really amount to much because it didn't stop uh, Prigozhin's airplane from being blown up. Uh, and it didn't necessarily result in all of Wagner then moving to uh, Belarus. Some did, but it's still not completely clear. But yeah, it was an op it was opportunism on Lukashenko's part of inserting himself into the discussion to show his loyalty towards um, Putin and to try and show, you need me. You need me to help sort out this crisis with Wagner. Ultimately, probably he didn't need him, but it, at the time it was seen as a time to say, how can we benefit from this? You know, we, Maybe we'll get a new good deal from uh, Putin or maybe we can leverage our influence by saying, look, we helped you with this Wagner thing, therefore help us with something else. So it was, it was getting involved uh, in order to try and shore up uh, Lukashenko's um, power at home. But it doesn't mean that um, he's always been good friends with or supported Wagner in the past. You know, 
they had been willing to turn against Wagner when it was in his interest in an election campaign back in 2020. So, you know, that's something that I never really understood, I have to be honest, that um, how how is it in Putin's interest or why would Putin um, like uh, Lukashenko to um, give, uh, I'd say, refuge to, uh, to Prigozhin? Um, wouldn't he rather have him uh, that, that that he gives uh, Prigozhin to uh, back to Russia so that he can arrest him or whatever? Um, yeah, it's very di it's very difficult to say who was thinking about what in terms of the whole Wagner affair um, because again, it, it wasn't that long after it's <coughs> after an agreement after the the proposed agreement with Belarus was made that that the, uh, his plane blow, blew up anyway. So it may have been the plan was to um, take uh, Prigozhin out of the picture later anyway. And it was just useful to give the appearance of, look, we're being reasonable and we're doing a negotiated thing. But the plan always was to find another way to to get back at um, Prigozhin. It's not completely clear. But um, it's probably more of a delaying tactic. So you know, let's, let's see how things are panning out. Let's start talking to the um, uh, Wagner fighters. Let's just make sure that we can sort things out on the ground and get loyalty from different groups within it, and then we'll decide what to do about um, Prigozhin in the longer term. So uh, now we got uh, before we get into um, some a little bit different topics. Mm -hmm. I want to first ask you: Is there anything uh, that I should have asked you that I didn't, or anything else you want to add? No, I think that's uh, yeah. The main thing is the one thing I've always seen in 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 spending several years, many years now studying uh, Belarus and Lukashenko is the which is why I sort of chose that title you were asking about earlier. Is the assumption this is that everything is exactly as it was um, 20 years ago when he came to power, or that if you go to Belarus, it's just like going to Soviet Union. But the reality is there are you know. There are changes on the ground, which has been in for many years was enough to keep most people happy and at least tolerate his autocratic rule. But this has become much more difficult now ever since um, the 2020 protests. Um, but the, as you were asking, you know, does that mean he he's faces more of a threat now because of um, the fact he's resorted more to crackdowns, oppression and relying more and more on Russia it means that the chances of getting him out of power have become more difficult. I think it's very interesting, the um, adapting to the a dictator or authoritarian uh, regime, adapting to, um, to the citizens as well, which in a way has democratic features, I'd say then. Um, it's, it's something that I, I talked with, I don't know if you know him, Martin Dimitrov, he's... Um, Professor Martin Dimitrov, he wrote a book on um, how dictators or authoritarian regimes get their information. Yeah. And um, I talked with him also on the podcast and he told me um, that one important metric um, that authoritarian regimes and he also um, um, measure are um, the relationship between a complaint, citizen complaints to the regime to um, uh, to the reaction of these uh, complaints so uh, how many uh, of these campaigns uh, get answered and um that long living uh, regimes actually have um higher or at, uh, around about a 40% uh, answer rate um so so they in a way um 
do change as uh, not not as much as democratic regimes probably, but uh, do change as uh, as the citizens um, would like. Uh, have you heard about that? Yeah, yeah. That, it, it also comes up the question where people ask, say, with um, uh, a non-democratic system like Belarus, so. If you're going to be a non-democratic system, why are you still bothering to even go through having elections? But elections are very useful. You might still fake the results, but you will know what the original results were. So then you will know, okay, where do we have tensions or problems? Where don't people support us? Where do we know? So and therefore, we need to do something about that, which could be, okay, we have to provide benefits or subsidies or something for a certain region. Or it could be, right, we have to crack down in these areas because we can see that's where the problems are. But yeah, it's if you don't know how people feel, you're, you're going to be then be surprised when they turn against you. Uh, if you allow things to build up over time, maybe people will tolerate, okay, I'm not happy, but I'm not too bothered about it. But eventually, you will get to, say, 2020 in um, Belarus when you did have suddenly lots of people coming out and actively protesting more than they ever had before. Um, yeah. And that is something that dictators obviously like less than these uh, citizen complaints, uh, open protests, where others also can see that other citizens are not uh, not happy with the situation. Yeah. yeah um, absolutely. I'm wondering when you're uh, when you're researching a um, researching about a country in which uh, the media landscape is, Uh, it's not completely uh, free and in general info it's probably hard to get um, to information how are you um, selecting sources i mean it's going to be a mixture of things like when i was working initially on my phd and stuff on one hand sometimes you do need to use the um, official mouthpieces of the regime and the the stuff which pumps out all the propaganda so you know that what what is being sold or pitched to the people so you can't ignore that because you say, oh, it must be propaganda, therefore I won't look at it. Because it's useful in its own way to understand what's being sold to the public. But then you can find, you know, even in the, like, um, like 15 years ago, I guess, when I first started going to Belarus for research, back then you still had a certain number of independent or alternative print newspapers. Increasingly you had things online, And say so it was possible to find alternative sources. It's just that for the most part, most average citizens relied on state media, particularly television. You had to really hunt down to find alternative, say, print media or online media. Um, but again, it's become more and more difficult now ever since 2020 and the real crackdown after the protests against Lukashenko then to actually get access to and for independent-minded journalists to to work in the country. So a lot of the websites I used to look at, which provided alternative perspectives, are no longer functioning or have gone into exile. So it does become more difficult, but um, it's just a case of being aware of what is the viewpoint or perspective of this news source, what is behind it, who is backing it, what positions do they take? So it's triangulating multiple sources, but also being willing to use obviously biased ones just to understand those different perspectives as well. No, interesting, because that's a question that I um, 
that I find really hard to answer for myself, uh, in, in, not uh, in regards to Belarus now, but in general, um, what media, what information, where, where should I get my information from? Um, and I find it's not so not so easy to um, if one because every every piece of media uh, has biases because they have different um, audiences in mind, for example, and um, therefore. I, how even when there's an independent journalist in Belarus, um, how do you uh, think about their um, articles? For example, you can't get them. Uh, you can probably just take them at uh, at face value. Well, again, it, it, would be, it would tend to be like looking through. As I say to my students, I I wouldn't just take one article and say here is an article. Therefore, everybody agrees with this, and this must represent everything. It would be like. Okay, maybe taking a variety of articles from a variety of different newspapers or journalists, and just seeing if if multiple independent um, news sources that have a similar point of view, that might there might be some something common there. If you've only got one person who's making a, an out uh, an extreme claim, maybe that isn't maybe that one you question a bit more. It's like, however, nobody else, neither state-run or independent, has repeated this maybe this is a bit more uh, unreliable. But yeah, if, if everybody's saying it from different sources, you know, maybe it's like multiple different perspectives have brought this up. There could still be problems with it, of course, or it could be everybody's making the same mistake, but you're not relying on one source to explain everything. So as much, pos as, much as possible, it would be a case of do multiple different viewpoints appear from multiple different interlocutors. That's what I would say. Uh, well, thank you very much. We're going over to the rapid fire questions then. So, okay. Um, I have some prepared. Um, uh, please answer them in round about two to three sentences. Yeah. Uh, note some of the, uh, these are not necessarily linked to uh, your area of research, so not necessarily linked to Belarus, but maybe also your personal, um, personal opinions. Um, let's start off with a personal one. If you had a big billboard, let's say on Times Square, everybody would see it. What would you put on it? Oh, right. Uh, it's a difficult one. Um, you can think for a little. That's fine. Uh, my gut instinct is just to say Slava Ukraini. You know, you know, I've, I've lived a long time in Ukraine. I'm very supportive of Ukraine. So I just want to be... Uh, you know, glory to Ukraine, you know, reminding people that there are still things happening there. It's very much, it's already slipping down the international attention. So it's just a reminder of Ukraine that there's things still going on there, even if it's no longer the front page headlines anymore. So something about that, something which is a reminder of like things are still happening in Ukraine. It still needs attention. Do you have a favorite quote? The one I always remember, I suppose, would be uh, from uh, Bulgakov, from Master and Margarita, the great Soviet novel. Um, uh, manuscripts do not burn. Rokopisi ne goreat, as they say in Russian. So it's a famous one about um, you can do what you, you can burn books, you can get rid of things, but the words will always, the memories will always exist. So I always like that one. Uh, what would you have liked to know when you were 20? Hmm. Gosh, where was I? When I was 20, I was 
let's see, I think I was living in Russia. <laughs> um, I think it was on my first visit to Russia. Yeah, I suppose if I was 20, I probably would have thought I should have bought more stuff. I should have bought property in Moscow. <laughs> I bet I could have afforded something back in 30 years ago. And uh, then, it, and then, then know when to sell it before before the invasion and things like that. But, <laughs> but yeah, um, I suppose it's um, what else would have been good at twenty to know? Oh yeah, the also I suppose I would have said, don't worry about your twenties. You know, you really settle down in things in your thirties, is what I think. So you often think, oh, you have to get everything right. You must be completely preferred and have your life sorted out in your twenties. But I don't think I had. And I think I really settled down more and got in things in my 30s or more. And then I was really comfortable about stuff. And you, the 20s, you experience things and then you can settle down into things in the 30s. So it's what, be patient and don't worry if you haven't got everything agreed or sorted out in your 20s. It might take longer. What's your newest, biggest insight? <laughs> my newest, biggest insight. Gosh, that's um. I don't know at the moment. It's a election day today here in the Netherlands, so I keep finding myself thinking about uh, Dutch politics. But um, there's no really good insights in that. So, um, hmm. I suppose I've really noticed that that actually. Um, public opinion and even uh, expert opinion is very short term and um, is quickly moving on to whatever is the, the next big thing. You know, um, at the moment, everything is about Gaza and Palestine and Israel. But in six months, nobody, it will be complete, something completely different. So there's a lot of short termism. You know, and a, a year ago, it was all Ukraine. People would not stop talking about Ukraine. But then now, now it's all about not something else. So, you know, both uh, the public and um, policymakers can only really focus on one thing at a time. I just realize that the world is not like that. You have to be able to focus on multiple things at the same time and, and things are not straightforward. So it's, it's um, looking beyond the headlines and think about what's the, what's the thing just underneath the headlines or in the second policy briefing, which could become the big thing tomorrow. And you have to be aware of that in advance. A controversial opinion, I believe what almost nobody else does. Um, <laughs> the Dutch are not as tolerant as they think they are. Um. <laughs> um, what do you see as the biggest problem in Belarus uh, today? Uh, Lukashenko. Lukashenko. <laughs> yeah. No, my, uh, he's my, got my, such... He's, He's been there for so long and such a, got such a firm grip that you know, though, he's, though he faced real pressure in 2020, I think because he got through that, he's, he's retightened his grip on power. Uh, so um, it means, and he, he's the one who's dragged Belarus more into the Ukraine conflict, which has also been a problem for Belarus itself. So, yeah, it's easy to blame him, but I think in some way, yeah, you do have to. <laughs> <laughs> no that's funny I, the usually the next question then is uh, how would you try to solve that problem uh, if you had a billion dollars now um this might be harder <laughs> with this answer um 
until something comes to mind. Well, yes, yeah. it's the same thing that people have always argued about. Okay, what what does the West do to support you know the, the democratic opposition or the alternatives in Belarus? Uh, I think the main thing is is the challenge is always, um, and it's the same in in all sorts of non democratic systems. There's lots of agreement of we want to get rid of the autocratic ruler, but less agreement of what do we want next. You know, okay, we want to get rid of Putin, we want to get rid of Lukashenko, we want to get rid of whoever, but what do we want instead? A throwback to Soviet times or a free market, you know, neoliberal Western economy. But that's those are completely different things. You know, they can all agree they don't want Lukashenko, but how do you agree on what you want next and how you're going to achieve it? That's the real difficulty. It's the same with providing Western support. Okay, you can support, you know, opposition against, say, Lukashenko. But okay, what are they trying to build afterwards? That's very difficult, both for the opposition and for Western supporters. How now, not in regards or not necessarily in regards to uh, Belarus, how would you spend $10 billion to make the world a better place? Hmm. To make the world a better place, I th well, I suppose it's a cliched one, but I think if we're looking at the longer term and globally, we have to. There, are, there are things to be looked at in terms of the environment and energy consumption. I think I don't know what the answer is, but if we had you know a ten billion thirty to try and sort it out to wean people off uh, fossil fuels and uh, finding ways to. Because if we look at even if we look at the conflicts in say post-Soviet Eurasia or Ukraine, a lot of it ends up being about gas and oil. So if we take that out of the equation, uh, it doesn't stop wars or things, but it does mean things can focus on other aspects of economy or politics or standards of living. So I suppose, yeah, for the biggest impact at the global level, it would be something to do with energy. And uh, the last question. Um, who do you think will win the 2024 elections? Uh, in US? In Belarus. Oh, in, in Belarus. Belarus. Um, I, it's going to, uh, it will be overwhelmingly um, loyal, independent candidates who all support Lukashenko. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, no problem. Matthew Matthew Freer, um, if you want to know more about um, his ideas and his insights on uh, Belarus, um, check out his book, Belarus on the Lukashenko Adaptive uh, Authoritarianism. Now I got it. <laughs> well done. And uh, thank you for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me.